Mark chapter 15, we're going to be looking at verses 16 to 32. Thank you to several of you after last week, you mentioned, Pastor, I'm going to pray for you. I said, well, thank you. <laughs> Often the next comment was, because you sound awful. Um, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. And I was feeling, feeling much better, but uh, there's nothing quite as humbling as talking into a microphone with a stuffy nose, because you sound like 10 times worse, at least in my own head. But uh, uh, I know many of you have, have the sniffles as well, but uh, um, looking forward to powering through and uh, sharing God's word with you this morning. So Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 32, it's on page 852 in the Pew Bible. Let's pray. I'll read our passage. Father, thank you for that wonderful cross. Of course, Lord, it's a, it's a symbol of death. Um, it was a symbol of suffering, of agony, of sorrow, of humiliation, but yet Lord, you took this thing that was despised and wicked and has turned it into something beautiful, Lord. Not that we neglect the pain that was on it, but Lord, in the midst of that pain, the fact that forgiveness was accomplished through Christ. Lord, help us now as we reflect this morning on the ridicule and suffering that Jesus Christ endured on our behalf, that we would again be humbled and that we would pause and we'd be sober-minded and to think in our hearts what a wonderful cross, but more importantly, what a wonderful Savior. Lord, we love you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Please follow along as I read, starting in verse 16. <clears throat> and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, and he can't sa cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Growing up, one of a favorite pastime of many kids is playing dress up. Uh, we have a tub of old Halloween costumes or things we found at Goodwill uh, or got from cousins. Uh, we have uh, three nephews who are uh, several years older than our kids. And so as they've grown out of costumes, they've been passed down to us. And uh, so we have Several Star Wars costumes, Mario and Luigi, a couple cowboys, a pirate, and 
And they're our favorite thing of, of the kids to play, to dress up in. Uh, and it, it's fun to see what they come upstairs wearing, what conglomeration of articles of clothing, uh, a pirate, you know, a pirate, Jedi, Spider-Man, whatever you name it, they, they, can, they can almost be it. And they have fun running around and playing and, and pretending that they are whatever they're dressed up as. It's something that's been common for kids for almost probably as, as long as time has been. Playing dress up and think, this is who I am, look at me. In our passage this morning, Jesus is dressed up by his captors as the king of the Jews. But it's not a game. It's, it's not something fun. It's not something that is to be laughed at and to be enjoyed, but it's out of mockery, out of ridicule, out of shame and humiliation. Jesus is dressed up by these soldiers as the king of the Jews, and they even proclaim, Hail, king of the Jews. And we read this and we understand that this is to embarrass Jesus, to mock him and to ridicule him. But the irony is this, is that as Jesus is dressed up as the king of the Jews, he truly is the king of the Jews. Mark, throughout this section of his gospel from the trials before the Sanhedrin and before Pilate and before the crowds and now here in his crucifixion, there's an underlying sense of irony, the fact that all these people are mocking Jesus for claiming to be the Messiah and the King of the Jews, and, and they think it's a term of, of offense to, to proclaim Jesus as these things, and their hearts are ones that want to mock him, but in their mocking, they are actually speaking the truth, that Jesus truly is the King of the Jews. He is the Messiah. He is the suffering servant king. And while we read this and look at their situation and circumstances and think, how could they be so blind? We, from this side of Mark's gospel, need to realize that this, again, proves the identity of Jesus. That he is who he says he is. Okay, he is who he says he is. But then for us, what is our response? We see Jesus suffering. We see Jesus fulfilling all these things. But yet now we must ask ourselves, what are we going to do? How are we going to respond? Do we identify and understand and see Jesus as a suffering servant king? Our big idea this morning from this passage is this. That the crucifixion and mockery of Jesus as king of the Jews proves his identity as the suffering servant king. Mark in his gospel is laying this out again and again. What is the purpose of Mark's gospel? Is to present Jesus as the suffering servant king. And he's been doing this all along. We read from Mark chapter 10 verses 35 to 45 where that passage or James and John, the sons of thunder, they want to be seated at Jesus' right and left hand in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking. <laughs> Something's going to happen to me that's going to be so terrible, and so overwhelmingly painful and difficult. Are you able to endure that? Well, yeah, Jesus, we can do that. He says, you don't understand. And the mindset that you have is wrong. 
The mindset is not one of coming into being first, but rather coming and being last. To not being served, but to serve. For Christ is giving his life as a ransom for many. This morning, as we look at verses 16 to 32, this big idea is pretty simple. That This again proves Jesus as a suffering servant king. We're going to look at four groups of people that mock him. And just to be up front with you here, uh, there's not much of a, so this is what you need to do now in this message. Certain times in God's word, you read a passage and you think, okay, how does this apply to my life? What things do I need to change? Uh, how, how do I seek to implement this in my life? Then there are other passages of scripture that are well known and that when we come to and read them, the proper response is to stop and to think and to pray, and to listen, and to reflect, and to think, God, this is what you've done for me. This is one of those passages where Jesus and his suffering is laid out before us, and he is mocked, and he is ridiculed, and it's good for us to pause, and to reflect, and to think, to even seek to comprehend, wow, Jesus went through this for me. So let's look here at Jesus's a path to crucifixion, and these four groups of people that mock him. First, we're starting with the mockery of the soldiers. In verse 16, these soldiers are Roman pagan soldiers, and they lead him away inside the palace. So we're picking up here in the flow of the narrative where Pilate has just stood before the crowd with Jesus, and he says, who do you want, Jesus or Barabbas? Do you want the innocent man who's done nothing but heal people and perform miracles and and, and seek the good of those around him? Or do you want this murderer, this insurrectionist, this bad dude? Give us the bad dude. <laughs> so Pilate has released Barabbas <coughs> and has arrested Jesus. And the crowd has called out for him to be crucified, crucified. So the soldiers lead him away inside the government compound. The governor's headquarters here, Mark records. And they called together the whole battalion. Now, there's some discussion how many men that is specifically. More than likely, it was around 600. So this is a large space with a lot of people. This is approximately 600 on one. Now, think of the uneasiness of being surrounded by 10 people on one. Now, 600 hardened Roman soldiers who could care less about who this man is. In this space that would be confined and here they are attacking Jesus they're mocking him they called together the whole battalion it says in verse 17 they clothed him in a purple cloak the charge against Jesus is that he claimed to be the king of the Jews and so if he's the king of the Jews they're going to mock him and let's make him king they take a purple robe whether it's a an actual purple robe some people think it would be a stinky uh, scarlet robe, which is what the Roman soldiers wore, but over time the color would fade almost to a purple. Um, and they put that around Jesus to signify royalty, right? Purple was a sign of royalty. And they put the cloak around him, and then they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. We think of this crown of thorns. If you've ever been pricked by a thorn, you may think, oh, that would hurt. These thorns are different. These are bigger thorns. Something kind of like this. 
These aren't, oh, I didn't see that thorn. This is, this would hurt. These are two, three inches. They have, the thorns have thorns. This is ridiculous. (laughs) And they place this on his head. I'm sure they were very gentle when they did it. Because a king needs his crown. So they put a robe on him and they placed a crown of thorns on him. And in placing the crown of thorns on him, they then continued to ridicule and mock him. And they, they bowed down before him. It says in verse 18, they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And this was the, the same greeting that the Romans would give to Caesar. Hail, Caesar. This is the way that they welcomed their emperor. And, and they were saying it to Jesus. Hail, king of the Jews. And in the midst of this, they were striking him on the head. They were striking his head with a reed. This reed was a, a flexible uh, stick. It was like a switch. Some of you might be old enough when mom or dad would go and get a switch from out back and administer some discipline. And this switch that they had, this reed, would continue to strike Jesus again and again. And, and they would have blows to the head. And all of this is amplified by the fact that he's wearing a crown of thorns. So every blow to the head would, would cause the crown to dig in deeper or to, to scratch more. They were striking his head with a reed and, and spitting on him. Perhaps one of the most humiliating and derogatory things that you can do to an individual is to spit on them. And in the midst of all this, they are kneeling down in homage to him. And in this fake honoring of him as king. Verse 20, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. In four short verses, Mark records this beating, this humiliation of Jesus. And remember, this is also after he'd already been scourged. His back would be in pieces. He'd be bleeding. He'd be losing blood like crazy. Now all this humiliation and blows to the head, he'd be so disoriented. Blood would be streaming down his face and his back and overwhelmed with this complete just beating. They mock him. They ridicule. They have no regard for his life. Following this began the process of crucifixion. Because this was all extra. This normally didn't happen, this whole ridicule thing. They would often beat a person, but not to this extent. Not with this mockery and humiliation. So they lead him out to crucify him. Verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, to carry his cross. The Romans had crucifixion down to a science. They were really, really good at it. They had used crucifixion in so many different ways to inflict the most punishment possible. And what they would do is, from the place of arrest and trial and initial beating, they would then walk the person through the city to subject them to humiliation from the crowds to the place where they would be crucified. For no one was ever crucified in the city. They were always crucified outside the city. And they were always always crucified on a major thoroughfare. 
on a main road so that people coming in and out of the city would see the suffering, that they would be warned that any uh, further uh, rec- uh, you know, reviling the government or, or breaking of the law will be dealt with with punishment. <clears throat> and so what they would do is they would, they would take the cross beam of the cross and, and they would strap it to the person's shoulders and they would make them carry that beam. Sometimes you see a picture of Jesus and he's got the entire cross and he's carrying that through the city. More than likely that didn't happen. It was just the, the cross beam and his arms would be up and whether he was already nailed to it or uh, you know, uh, uh, leather straps around it to where he could carry it, this beam weighing at least 100 pounds or more, Jesus would carry through the city and he couldn't. He was already overcome with the wounds of his beatings. And so they pulled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, and Mark includes this. And uh, it seems as if people should know him, or if not, he should know his sons. He, he comments of the Alexander and Rufus, uh, gives a little, uh, some connections there with his sons, whether they, the people would be familiar with them. But Simon is drafted into helping Jesus carry his cross. And they make their way through the city in verse 22. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. This was a place of common crucifixion. The cross, uh, crosses would be prepared. The beams in the ground would be ready. And here they are. Verse 23, And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, there's several different ideas of what this was. Some people think it was uh, basically uh, a pain management. Here is some wine with some myrrh to, to dull the pain. Some people think it was some form of narcotic to make them even more delirious. Uh, some commentators believe that it was another act of humiliation because a king needs his drink, uh, needs his wine with the fragrance of myrrh. Whatever one of those things Uh, might be the case, Jesus denies the wine. He did not take it. He's not giving in to this mockery. If it is for pain management or an hallucinogenic effect, uh, Jesus does not want it. He is not minimizing what he's going through. It says then in verse 24, they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. They stripped Jesus, whether he was already uh, stripped down to begin with or he was still clothed on the walk there, uh, they took his clothes. So he's either standing there naked or just with a loincloth on in front of everyone. And they take his garments and they cast lots to decide uh, what each person should get. Verse 25 And it was a third hour, nine o'clock in the morning, when they crucified him. Mark, as we've already looked at, is very economical with his word choices. But as he describes this situation for us, the end of verse 25 is staggering. All of this happens. This event that Jesus' ministry has been leading to, this event that was prophesied in Isaiah 53, which there are so many allusions to Isaiah 53 and other passages from Isaiah of 
him being beaten and mocked and ridiculed and scorned and, and having his garments divided. Psalm 22 talks about that. All of these things for hundreds of years have been leading to this, even before Isaiah and his prophecies. You go back all the way to the garden with Adam and Eve. We always end up there because this is how God is fixing the problem of sin. Back to Adam and Eve in the garden when they took of the fruit and ate and, and God told Adam and Eve and the serpent there will be conflict, there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and, and the seed of the serpent. And the serpent, will he will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. Do you realize from that moment on, everything in Scripture is the outflow of that? The conflict between God and his enemies. The question of who is going to be the one who's going to redeem us from sin? Who is going to be the one who's going to crush the head of the snake? Is it going to be Cain? He crushed somebody else's head. <laughs> is it going to be Noah? He delivered justice, but yet he fell short. Abraham. Abraham's son, son Isaac. Not Isaac. Jacob? Jacob had 12 sons. Surely it's got to be one of those. Moses. Moses is going to lead the, the people out. He's going to be the one. Well, no. There's one coming who's going to be greater than Moses. Then you have all the judges. Finally, a king. King Saul. He fell short. King David. God made some amazing promises to King David, but yet he was, he was not the fulfillment of that promise. Surely it wasn't Solomon or the other kings, the prophets, centuries and centuries, events and events, nations rising and falling, the nation of Israel falling into sin and sent into exile and being brought back. And the question again and again, how long, O Lord, how long will you let us suffer in our sin, suffer in our exile? How long will you let this conflict continue on? How long until the Messiah, the one who's going to come and set all things straight. How long, O oh Lord? All of that is wrapped up into verse 25. They crucified him. Who's they? It was the Romans, but it was also the religious leaders. It's also the nation crucifying Jesus. Here we see the serpent bruising the heel of the seed of the woman. This has been prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3, and now we see it coming to fulfillment. They crucified him through suffering, through ridicule, through mocking, through death. Jesus is crucified. One author says this, Mark uses only three words in the Greek. They crucified him. Through crucif though crucifixion was not invented by the Romans, having been practiced by Persians and Greeks and others before them, it became their favorite means of execution. It served not only as a means of capital punishment, but also as a weapon of terror, 
a warning to the populace of the catastrophic consequences of challenging Roman authority. One historian said this, the Romans used crucifixion to bring mutinous troops under control, to break the will of conquered peoples and to wear down rebellious cities under siege. Dangerous criminals and rebellious slaves were often crucified. The practice was viewed with horror by writers of the day, too cruel and severe punishment to be inflicted on Roman citizens even. Cicero, the great order, calls it the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible. Josephus refers to it as the most miserable of deaths. Death by crucifixion resulted from bleeding, exposure, exhaustion, and asphyxiation. Sometimes a small seat would be attached to the cross or footrest to allow the victims to push themselves up to breathe, thus lengthening the time of torture. Most victims would linger for days on the cross, while some giving way to the elements, some gradually becoming prey for birds and wild dogs, and others simply wasting away over time. Jesus died. He was crucified by the Romans, by the religious leaders, by the people, and truly by you and me for our sin. The heel of the seed of the woman has been bruised. We see next the mockery of the people. Verse 26, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. So there's a placard placed above Jesus with the, his accusation why he's being crucified. And the gospel writers each give a little different nuance to it. None of them contradict. They give the full picture of what was recorded there above the cross. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The fact that this was placed there as his reason for death and as mockery and actually the irony that he truly is king. Verse 27, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 29, and those who passed by the crowd derided him, wagging their heads. This, this language of deriding him and wagging their heads is, is mocking and shouting and making faces and and laughing at complete public humiliation. Saying, ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourselves and come down from the cross. They're saying, didn't you say that you could destroy the temple in three days? Come down, save yourself. Yeah, you talked, talked a big game, but now you can't do anything, Jesus. So much for all those miracles you did. So much for all those things you prophesied. You're a fraud. You're not truly king. What do you know? Jesus is mocked by the crowds. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Again, the irony here. They are calling for Jesus to save himself when in the act of him dying on the cross, he is truly saving them. They're saying, you who would destroy the temple. He wasn't speaking of the physical temple. He was speaking of his own body, which he was in the process of giving over to death. Again and again, we see the blindness of the crowds of the people to who Jesus truly is. And in their mockery, they make it known of their spiritual blindness. The chief priests are there, our third group of people who mock Jesus. The mockery of the chief priests. Verse 31, they're just... They're like a bad penny who just keeps showing up, these chief priests. Like, they're just there. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. You better be sure that they, once they delivered Jesus over to Pilate, 
they were just mingling around, making sure that what they wanted to happen happened. And there they are in the crowds saying to one another, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Come down, Jesus, verse 32. Let the Christ, let the Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. What an ignorant, terrible statement that we may see and believe. Jesus did amazing miracles. He, he healed Lazarus from the dead. He turned water into wine. He multiplied bread and fish. He made the lame to walk, the blind to see, those who had leprosy be clean. All these amazing things. And now they said, well, come down, Jesus, and we'll believe. We'll believe. Save yourself. Their statement of him being the Messiah and King of Israel is so sharp because they have claimed that it is him who made these statements. Now this is why he's being crucified, yet they are now using it as a term to mock him. The idea of him coming down from the cross (coughs) is the same temptation that Jesus faced in Gethsemane when he prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. At Gethsemane, Jesus made that decision to submit himself fully to the will of his Father. One author said this, in this haunting picture of Jesus, fastened to a cross, assailed in mockery, we see proof of the amazing difference between God's way and everything which men consider their goal or conceive as being God's way. There is no self-defense from Jesus, no effort to get even or get in the final word, no attempt to preserve at least a modicum of dignity and pride. Jesus surrenders in total vulnerability to the malevolence and violence of the world. To the mockery of the chief priests, to the mockery of the people, to the mockery of the soldiers, and lastly, to the mockery of those who are crucified with him. We read in verse 27 that two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left, and in verse 32, the very last phrase, we read that those who were crucified with him also reviled him. In Luke's account of the gospel, we have the account of the the criminal basically coming to his senses and pleading with Jesus to save him. And Jesus does, right? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. But the other one was fully set against Jesus. Think how much contempt one must have for Jesus. For here is a man who was truly guilty being crucified next to a man who'd done nothing and yet the mocking and the ridicule was so severe, reviling him. Saying that he deserved what he was getting. Ridiculing him. Wagging his own head at him. (laughs) You think he would have some form of sympathy. Like, hey man, I know what you're going through. No, he was just as bad as the crowds on the ground mocking Jesus was the man hanging next to him. Again, Jesus was numbered among the transgressors and even those who were with him ridiculed him and reviled him. This passage, these 16 verses here of Jesus' beating and crucifixion show us that as much as the Suffering was physical. How much of it was emotional and spiritual? 
How often have you gone through something physically hard and yes, there's been pain and suffering, but you've endured. But how when one person says one phrase or one comment, that that can strike you down in a matter of seconds. Now you combine those two things together. Jesus truly has been rejected by all. Jesus truly has been rejected by all. There is nobody on the Lord's side. His followers have abandoned him. The religious leaders who should have welcomed him have turned against him. The populace who he ministered to and loved and performed miracles to demonstrate who he was, who he served willingly, are now wagging their heads at him. And even those who are guilty and going through the same thing as him have reviled him. The author, one commentator said, dwells on the mocking and taunting of Jesus. We are not surprised when the cruel Roman soldiers mock him since they are the historical enemies of Israel. Yet when Jewish passerbys do the same, our author indicates that the people of Israel have rejected their Messiah. The one who announced the kingdom, offered hope, expelled demons, fed the multitudes, healed the sick, and raised the dead has himself come to nothing. We tend to despise the most those who disappoint us the most. And the people who once eagerly flocked to Jesus in hope now despise him in his weakness. The derision by the religious leaders is not surprising to the readers of Mark who have witnessed entrenched opposition to Jesus from the beginning. The taunting by the crucified criminals perhaps the most surprising and audacious. They are in the same position as Jesus, yet in their own depravity, all that they can do is lash out at him one more time, at one more humiliated than themselves. Mark's portrait here is one of total rejection by a depraved humanity. I love that quote that Pastor James shared with us from John Stott. Um, before we realize that the cro cross is for us, what was it, Pastor James? The cross was done by us. The cross was done by us. You might say, well, I wasn't present. I didn't crucify Jesus. You're right. But the sin in your heart is the same sin that has been passed down from Adam and Eve. The reason for the ridicule and ultimately the crucifixion, the sacrifice of Christ. Before we realize that the cross is for us, we need to realize, in a sense, our sin is the sin that put Jesus on that cross. It's done by us. Yet, one author says, as we look at the cross, we need to have eyes of faith that recognize that while humanity has turned against God, God has not rejected them. The death of Jesus is an act of reconciliation, God's sacrificial gift to the world, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we are still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you. Even when you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Christ died for Kurt. Christ died for, for Blake, for John, for Josh, for Rebecca, 
niece, for Greg. He died for you. He died for me. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't it so interesting? We are here and we are celebrating the death of somebody. What other religion celebrates somebody going through abject humiliation and suffering? Not a single one. That's not where our hope ends. For as Christ has been crucified, as he suffers, we're going to read as we look next in the Gospel of Mark. He's buried. Oh, but there's a day coming when we will celebrate that resurrection. The one who has died for us has also been made alive. But now let us reflect. Let us sit in the abject horror and humiliation of the cross, realizing that it was you and I who put Christ there. May that humble us. And may that cause us to be filled with even more awe and thanks and gratitude for what Christ has done for us. As we close, we're going to sing.